Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone. Today, I've got a fantastic guest for you. This person started in 1990 buying property in London, splitting houses into flats and HMOs. He then bought and developed property every single year since then, and then started buying commercial too in 2001. He has weathered all markets and has built a truly fab personal portfolio. And recently, he slowed down on the HMO and flat developments and shifted his attention to creating serviced offices and co-working spaces. So one of the co-working spaces we're actually in recording the podcast in St Albans before building starts in a couple of weeks. So if you haven't already guessed it, my guest today is Ranjan Bhattacharya. Hi well, Ranjan. Thank you very much Rod, it's a great pleasure to be on your podcast and we're also videoing it for, for you guys on YouTube so it's going to feature on your podcast you call it, That's isn't the one, it? Yeah. which is available from all the usual uh, podcasting sources and you can also get the video version on my YouTube t- channel that's just go on YouTube and search Ranjan Bhattacharya you'll find it there. Fantastic so Ranjan let's get started how did you get into property? How did I get into property? Well I like to say that I bought my first property aged eight years old. And how did you manage that? Monopoly. <laughs> uh, I got a set of Monopoly for my parents and really uh, I remember um, one summer holiday every single day there's a group of us in our road we just got in the garage and played Monopoly every single day and the thing about Monopoly is it does teach you a huge amount and subsequently people have written books about what Monopoly teaches you about business yeah, you know, yeah, there yeah. are whole hundreds of pages of books on this subject but there's a logic to it you know, you, uh, the person who wins the game is the person who uh, amasses properties which generate rental income. You go uh, up the chain, if you like, to, to, to develop on those properties, houses and then hotels to make uh, the rental income. And the more uh, you have, the more cash flow you generate in that game. And there's a certain logic to it. And it, to me, it seemed perfectly natural that that should extend to real life. So as soon as I was was old enough, I mean, I went to university, I did computer science. Um, When I got my job offer, I got a job at one of these management consulting firms. I took that offer to a bank and uh, they offered me a 100% loan at that time in 1990 to buy a property which I completed on two weeks after my graduation. And was this for you to live in or did you know from the outset that this was going to be an investment? Well, I had this grand idea that I was working in London. So I would, I would I'd buy this house in a London suburb close to the Tube and all of that. didn't quite work out like that because anyone who's in... I mean, I work for what is now Accenture. Management consulting is a funny old profession. They send you all over the place to work and you're never at your home location. So I quickly realised that, well, actually, this home is irrelevant. Might yep. as well rent it out. And then I kind of quickly became at the realisation that let's do this again, yep. if you like. Because the 1990s was, was a very funny time. I could not figure out what was going on. There was no one to talk to or network with. I knew no one who did property, had no clue what I was doing. But everyone was saying the market's dead, property prices were falling. In fact, in doing the first four years of my property career, property prices fell in every single year. Wow. Uh, so what I was buying was worth less 
than the market value of uh, what it was when I purchased. So it was a scary time, but... And you I, kept plugging away, though. Well, to me, it didn't seem to... I didn't understand people's... why they were scared. Because my theory was, I don't care about capital appreciation. Mm-hmm. You're saying property prices are not going to go up. And that's what people were saying back then. It was mm-hmm. going to be like Germany. Property yeah. prices will never go up. I believed them. So if you're buying for cash flow, and you buy, you pick off motivated sellers, because at that time, properties would sit in estate agent windows, not for six weeks, but for six months, 12 months. I would buy, back then I was buying something every few months, and 12 months later, I'd see the same properties in the window as were 12 months previously. And how were you financing those, those purchases at that well, time? At that time, I guess it was a different... Uh, you know, we're going to talk later on, yeah. hopefully, about change and how yeah. you adapt. You take advantage of the best conditions of the Absolutely. time. Um, well, was it all con- still the 100% mortgages, or were you now taking some of the rental income and using that for deposits and growing in that sort of both. organic fashion? Um, buy-to-let mortgages hadn't existed yeah. until about 1995. I did a lot of stuff when I was at university, from sh- share trading, importing... Apple Macintoshes from the States and then selling them here, Brilliant. And, uh, doing soft software, computer software businesses. and I did all sorts of stuff, basically. So I had some capital to use. I also benefited from being in a good job and career, yeah. so that even at that time, lending was tight. It was okay you if were you were bet. in a, a, a good career yeah. path. So I had a bit of capital, good career path. It was pre-buy-to-let, but after the first couple then what you're saying came into play where they took you as a, a, a as a as a business if you like i mean in the early 1990s it was still the days of relationship banking so you would see the whites of the eyes of the person making the yeah. decision and if they could see that you know you knew what you're doing and you had a little business plan in there and all of that they were much more comfortable and in those days you mentioned obviously you were essentially a business were you operating as a limited company or were you buying in your own name and what was the decision process behind that at the time no good point i mean at that time limited company mortgages didn't exist yeah. it was madness to do things in a limited company every tax advisor I ever spoke to said do it in your own name and that was pretty much everyone yeah. did yeah. For, for for a long long time it wasn't that it was do i do a or b B simply wasn't possible yeah. because there wasn't the credit available yeah. in limited companies. And if there was, it was just too expensive. Yeah. Well, it would probably have been a business loan that you would have had to show trading history of X amount of years to be able yes. to, to get any yes. of that rather yes. than lending on an asset. It was, listen, it was, it was a, it, as I said, it was a time of relationship bankers. Yeah. And, you know, I got loans from high street banks and I'd speak to the relationship manager. They understood what I was doing. At that time, we would, we would actually get homeowner loans and the ma- manager would tell me that he'll, he's happy to give me a consent to let after the after yeah. completion oh perfect so yeah. that's how I managed to just uh, grow the portfolio and so at that time you were buying single family houses and, and you were converting them or were you just buying flats and renting them straight out another great question i guess my overarching philosophy is to try to keep this as simple as possible mm-hmm. my work was very demanding so I thought, well, actually, you want to own as few rooftops as possible. So it was very much large houses, three, four-storey houses, because at that time there was no HMO legislation whatsoever. So you'd rent out a five, six-bedroom, uh, three-storey house in, in, in sort of Zone 2 London, Victorian three-storey, yeah. four-storey houses. You'd rent them out as a whole house, 
believe it or not, to eight and eight or nine sharers yeah. under one tenancy agreement. Perfect. So um, it's joint and severally liable, exactly. less work for exactly. you, probably less operational costs as well. Much less operation costs, amazing demand. Yeah. Um, really, I mean, I only had weekend time to do this. I'd come home at weekend and just um, uh, let, let these out in an instant. First people to see it would take it. But then it all changed because I, in my career, if you like, every six or seven years... Uh, the rules of the game change completely yeah. and it requires a complete adaptation. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about is really quite relevant because every six or seven years, the whole rules change. But I think what is relevant is how you change the game to adapt. Absolutely. And when you get used to adapting every six or seven years, I think you've got the staying power to stay in this in this business, whatever it throws at you. So, I mean, that probably is a good point for me to come in with my next question, which was... I'm a great believer in adapting to market changes to take advantage of those opportunities that that are created by that. So what were some of the property market changes that you've seen over your time in the last almost 30 years? And how did you take advantage of those and how did you uh, adapt? You know, uh, I'll answer the question, but looking back, I was just thinking actually, all these changes, the, the most dramatic changes... Uh, have been a bit of a pain in the backside to begin with. But after a few years, looking back, they were great. Uh, going back to the, the mid-1990s, that's when the three-storey HMO legislation came in. Yeah. I thought it was doomsday, going over. But the plan, what we did, was converted all the... Because a lot of the councils had a policy, once you get an HMO licence, they'd never allow it to be converted back. Yeah, they wanted to protect them. Exactly. Yeah. So the strategy was to convert them all into flats. Yeah. So we'd extended them and uh, then turned them all into three, four, five flat uh, buildings and kept the sort of freehold, kept the whole thing and rented them out. Now, what that did, of course, is it added massively to the capital capital value. value. It added greatly to the rental value. It did, Um, really, yeah. To the gross. Well, um, your operational costs were less because they're all self-contained. Yeah, Exactly. And having um, assets today that that are much more... Uh, give you much more options yeah, in yeah, terms yeah, of definitely. refinancing, restructuring or doing anything with plenty to play for. So and that at, was a change that worked out fantastic. And at that point, were you looking at these uh, flats thinking, oh, I must make sure they're over 30 square metres or if I, I won't be able to remortgage them? Or were you thinking, oh, let's get as many in as we can? And Well, it, 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 I wasn't really thinking like that. Yeah. It, was, it was the... When you do things under planning permission the council have a say on the dwelling mix. Yeah. So they typically say they, they want a three-bedroom unit on the ground floor with access to the garden, perhaps a two-bedroom, a couple of ones. Yeah. So you don't really have too much control over that. So even then they still had essentially what they have now, which is the, the minimum standards. Yes. But what, what that did is that, yes, I converted these in a hurry. Within a, within a space of a couple of years, I pretty much converted a good dozen or so buildings into flats. But what I had done is I'd pretty much learned flat conversions on my own portfolio, got the old team in place, yeah. and figured it out to the level where we could then go out and buy properties specifically to convert to into flats. flats. And that sort of taught a lot, because you'd learnt the trade on your own stock. And so what about some other market changes then after the 90s? Obviously, um, one of the big ones would be the recession in 2008. How did that affect you and your business at the time? I, I, to be honest with you, I don't see. I only see a benefit 
of that time. And is that because of the interest rates? (laughs) um, Interest rates collapsed, of course, which meant that any debt that you were holding, the repayments collapsed. It just absolutely collapsed. And, you know, some of... Some of the some of the debt. I mean, the mortgage was cheaper than the council tax on some of these properties. You know, when you're paying 0.25 percent above base lifetime tracker, you know, there's not much yeah. debt to pay. But the other aspect of this is, it was there was a credit crunch. So what you had was that some businesses couldn't borrow, but the credit crunch really affected trading businesses. Mm-hmm. But the banks were needed to lend to somebody. And they wanted to lend to cash flow generating, uh, particularly asset-backed Ra- businesses. Rather than new developments. And, yes. Yeah. So when you can approach... A, uh, so th- I think in, the big thing in 2009 was um, I stopped using uh, the buy-to-let mortgage broker yeah. with the standard off-the-shelf buy-to-let products yeah. and went to private and commercial banks. Now, when you sit down with them and you say, well, you know, have a look at the cash flow we're generating. The, the assets are financed with mortgages, which have still got 15, 20 years to run, and they're you know, 0.4% above base, 0.25% yeah. above base. So that shows that you have the cash flow, which gives them the comfort to kind of lend. Well, they can service the loan. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. So the, the benefit was that in that 2009 aftermath, there were lots of people who were getting um, cash calls and people were calling in loans, but we found we could borrow, and the assets were cheap. It just made sense to and when you go would, and have some fun. When you were developing out these sort of houses into flats, how were you financing from the beginning? Were you getting bridging loans, or were you able to get term loans straight from the get-go? Well, I, I used a mixture of bridging loans, but at that time, I did a lot of work with private investors. Yeah. Uh, private investors was the key, yeah. and you know, a, a simple thing. You know, when I sort of give talks and things. I gave a lot of talks at at various meetings and exhibitions and stuff like that. I might show a slide with a project and uh, just allude to the fact that I work with private investors. And most of my private investors came from, after I gave a talk, someone would give me a business card and say, give me a call, Mm. Um, we can talk further and and it goes from there. I'm certainly with you with private investment, I think. It um, gives you far more control, flexibility, but also you can reduce a lot of the blended costs that come with bridging in terms of fees, yes, um, surveying fees, monitoring fees, legal fees, but as well as exit and int- introduction fees. So yes. I, I, do, I, do, I do like that. So what were some of the businesses that you were seeing suffer at that time were the developers... For you, it seemed to be a great opportunity to buy. So, what did you? What were you buying? Same, um, same old. No, I was looking for stuff that was unmortgageable. Really? I mean, I remember the day after Lehman's crash, we bought this four-story house in Camden. It had the, power, the front parapet wall had blown off, and it was owned by the housing association, and the roof was covered in a tarpaulin, uh, and it had been like that for three or four years. Pigeon shit everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it went on sale at auction. It's unmortgageable. But if you've got private investors... You're one of the few who does exactly. have a credit line. Uh, well, I use private investors. And my trick with private investors is to say to... Like if I'm uh, borrowing a few for that property, I'll say to you, look, this is the property I'm buying. You can see it's tarpaulin, pigeon shit everywhere, whatever. That's what I'm doing. But for your security, how about this? Here's another um, of my assets, yes, which, is, which is, happens to be yeah. unencumbered. I used to use shops for that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So the great thing about a shop 
is if it's unencumbered, it generates a rent roll. If they have to get, get first charge on it, it's easy for them to take and manage and all of that. And it gives a level of comfort because the more comfort you can give someone, more less risk it is for them, then the, the better you can negotiate on your interest rate that you're Definitely. paying. And so that's why it kind of helps. So I'd, they'd, they'd get the excitement from seeing what we're doing but the security from the of their loan backed by something that's completely safe. That's a really interesting point. One of the things that I often talk about is the loan-to-value of the portfolio yes. and where you might be looking at your whole portfolio. Rather than having everything in the portfolio, maybe a loan-to-value of, say, 60%, I'd rather have some highly geared and certainly one or two unencumbered for exactly that reason that yes. you've mentioned because yes. it's much easier to get a first charge put on an unencumbered property, then a second charge put on another one which has an existing first charge. Absolutely. And then, and then of course, when you're looking at, uh, even with bridging lenders, of course, when you are looking to finance something, a purchase which is particularly complicated, perhaps you need some additional funds to uh, develop or make some repairs on or whatever, you say, well, have the first charge on the, the wreck that you're buying, but also have a charge on this other unencumbered property. Yeah. You blend that together and you suddenly get, if you like, more loan-to-value or you virtually buy the property that you're buying without any need to put any of your own Absolutely. money. And at that point, you, it sounds like you were in a fairly comfortable position where you had built up this portfolio where you could afford to do that and you had the large amounts of rent roll coming in that, that could give you that, that platform, really. The, the 2009, I think, was a very good period if you... I mean, the... the type of businesses were staffed which I think will be staffed moving yeah. on to next year are people who have relied on one exit which is sell yeah. so they're building developing and the only exit and we've seen some high profile collapses <laughs> recently where the only exit route was sell that was stuffed in 2009 because there's no cushion to fall back on there's no plan B well, I think it's in, the same thing that's I happening now I think in now. London it's been stuffed since 2016 to be honest but yeah that's a whole whole other topic so we kind of jumped over to 2008-2009 what changed in your mindset in 2001 that made you start buying commercial property? I think in t- well it, it, it was actually looking I mean I like to look ahead in terms of um, who's in the game who are sort of 20 years senior to me and what they're doing. And, you know, with uh, sourcing residential properties, you know, you go to seminars and things and people talk about source residential properties from tired landlords. Take some property from a tired landlord, find someone in their 60s or whatever. So people are going out there and finding tired landlords and buying their HMOs and putting fluffy cushions in and making them look all modern. Grey paint and mustard cushions. And doing all of that. But what they haven't given any thought to is, in 20 years' time, who's going to be the tired landlord then? And the thing I noticed is that I never met a tired commercial landlord. I met people who are 80 and they're owning some McDonald's drive-thru up north on one rent, four-quarter rent payments. There's nothing to do because it's let on a 20-year lease. They're not tired at all. There's no pain. Well, I think that's a big uh, point of reward versus risk and effort yes unfortunately we all get older and our effort levels are going to drop off at some point and so it's planning for that I think I don't think I did it really for that reason it was a bit of an aha moment because the the thing with residential property which I think people don't fully realize when they start out is it's not that difficult to get to 10 20 beyond that scaling involves a lot of manpower you need to have people whether you outsource it or have it in-house, 
you need to have quite a team of people. Now, with commercial property, uh, for the same pound-for-pound rent roll as residential property, you need much, much less staffing levels to make that sort of business work. And, and that is far more scalable. Yeah. As a, I mean, there's a reason why there aren't any or many national companies running three-bedroom yeah. HMOs split yeah. into five yeah. rooms. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's a great point and also quite nicely feeds into the next question, which is about scaling. So within your property business, you've come from the ground up and, and, and have grown pretty organically over the past almost 30 years. So what would you say the biggest challenges to your, you and your business were from scaling up to an asset base of 10 million and then also the next stage from scaling from 10 million up to where you are now? I think it's the, the key thing with any scaling, I think, is, is one of the key things is standardisation. You know, the McDonald's approach, if you like, to everything. Cookie cutter. Yes. And when we did the flat conversions as a result of the HMO legislation on three-storey houses, we suddenly had a portfolio of stuff where you walk into any property, the bathroom's the same, mm-hmm. the kitchen's the same. That means when our maintenance guys go out and fix anything, uh, they know the where everything is. It's not just and, yeah, the tiles, yeah, the way yeah, the yeah. taps are configured and the way the uh, stop thing is. You can tell I don't do this myself. <laughs> the way things are serviced and maintained, it's all pretty similar. And that makes ownership far easier. One of the big things about scaling with property business is when you bought, when you, uh, and I see this a lot with people who put out leaflets, because if you put out leaflets, you're just buying from the only commonality with the properties you buy is the seller's motivated. So you've got one flat here, one flat here, two-bedroom house here, and all of that sort of stuff. But if you're uh, keeping them, it's quite a mixed bag to keep on top of. The, the, what I also discovered th- through doing those flat conversions is pretty much by 1997, 98, I stopped buying individual flats. It would make your own. So you want the maximum number of rentable units under one rooftop. Yeah. That is where you have economies of scale in terms of all kind of efficiency costs start to come down. And also the manpower. I mean, if, if, if you have a certain number of units and they're spread all around, that's a completely different proposition to having them concentrated in fewer buildings. I totally get that being someone who has a portfolio in London and Manchester. <laughs> so, yeah, that resonates with me definitely. Oh, so going back to your yeah. question, I think the... The first stage of scaling was standardization, I guess. And the second stage of scaling is, is really the challenges of getting people into the business. Yeah. And uh, through that, it's uh, a lot of sort of boring stuff like systemization and proceduralization and doing but, things in the same way all the time. But that's really what this podcast is all about. It's, it's about the boring, nitty-gritty details that are what make... Good business is good business, absolutely, really. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I did in my consultancy days, uh, process re-engineering for big companies and all of that. So it, it's, uh, it's just applying all that stuff in, in a little small business. I think the thing for many people, though, is at what stage do they do it? Because everyone starts building the business and, you know, you've got a spreadsheet for one or two properties and all of that. And eventually that spreadsheet collapses or you want to bring someone in. And so no one says, hey, uh, we've grown this business to five units. Now's the time to scrap everything and put the infrastructure in for 50. Everyone uh, makes that change as a result of pain. Uh, that's what I've found. It all collapses and then people 
change it and build the infrastructure. So funny because I interviewed Jason Tracy, who was the founder of Beemore, and asked him a similar question. And he said, looking back, he wishes he had got the person in first to do the job rather than having to sort of fight the fire and get someone in afterwards because he said he would have scaled so much quicker doing that. So very That's absolutely correct. Yeah. I think the, 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 the key thing that many people um, don't quite kind of figure out early enough, and I fully concur with that, is to back yourself, mm. to take yourself out of the job first and then bring someone in to do that. And then to a large extent, the processes and the systemization starts to happen because you've got to manage, control and direct yeah. that activity of work. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. So one of the things you talked about there was having a cookie-cutter system and having everything the same. What about with your portfolio? Were there any ever points where you thought, oh, we are heavily invested into HMO rooms or on one particular type of property? And was there something that triggered a um, decision to change that? No. It wasn't that sort of diversification because... London is a, uh, by nature, a diverse tenant market. Yeah. So you've got one house, and one year some nurses take it, one year some students take it, one year some professionals. It's a different tenant group. Yeah. So you're not really um, so worried about that. The move away from HMO was the man effort it took. I think having sort of third-party or agencies to manage HMO rooms is a relatively new phenomenon. Ten years ago, agents were not interested if it was multi-let. Mm. So that was an activity you had to do uh, in-house. I guess I just found it easier to do other stuff uh, for the same, for the same level level, of yeah. yields. Um, the, the thing with yields, I think people get confused. I don't look at yields in the way that uh, you're meant to, which is rental income over value, uh, over market price today. Because I would never pay market price for anything. If I look at it as if I bought some property and then spent X doing it up, I look at my... Your equity. Yeah, what I've got in the game. Yeah. If by converting it to flats, it's uplifted by 40% and it's generating a certain amount of rental income, I don't divide that rental income by its new value. I divide it by what I put into it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll do it slightly differently. I'll, I'll look at not what I put into it, but I'll look at the releasable equity. Because yes. for me, that's, I can, it's easy to then judge how my asset's doing against other asset classes. So is what I own in this asset better off staying here? Yes. Or am I better off liquidating it and chucking it into a tax-free ISA or something yes. like that? Yes, yes, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think we're on the it's, same wavelength yeah, there, yeah, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, definitely. And, and I think when you look at it like that, then it's completely different equation because I'd never buy these buildings yeah. as the way I've developed of course yeah I'd only make them from scratch and also one of the interesting points you talked about there was the effort in dealing with sort of HMO tenants and I think that's one thing that kind of doesn't get talked about enough is over the life cycle of maybe that property or or even a 10-year term of having that property up and running as an HMO you're going to have things like maintenance costs are going to be far greater void periods are going to be greater because the tenant turnover is greater and so that eats into your net returns well yes uh, you're right i guess we have the luxury of for me it was just the uh, effort and and being able to do things which were easier effort but in terms of cash flow we had the comfort of london you know if you've got you know rooms which are which which rent out for pretty much single family lets rates up north 
it's always kind of quite okay. Um, the issue today is where people are buying relatively low-value properties yeah. up north. They are getting something per room, but they are basing their investment decisions based on full occupancy, which they rarely get. That causes a problem. The cost of refurbishing anything up there is, is not that it's not that different to buy a fitted kitchen anywhere in the UK. Yeah. Is it? Because the barriers of entry are so low in low-value areas, in two years' time, when your room needs to be relet. It's always up against some brand new guy that's been to a seminar, has put the fluffy cushions in and um, the uh, I say exa- feature I say exactly the, the same thing with grey walls and mustard cushions you're competing. So you're almost better off if you are going to go for that model to go for the lower end and go for maybe the council housing tenants and things like that that will be that low end, but you're not going to have a huge amount of turnover on it. Yes. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all kind of interesting stuff to see especially when you've got people that are coming into the industry and wanting to buy maybe HMOs not quite realizing what the what they involve over that long term Um, I think that's a really interesting point so we talked about your challenges when scaling what about in terms of commercial property so Obviously, now you find seem to have taken uh, a, your foot off the gas in terms of residential property, and you are concentrating on commercial. And obviously, except where we would get a commercial property and convert it to resident, full residential use or part residential use, um, but not the property is never bought as residential. Yeah. And so, why do you think there's opportunities in commercial? And you seem to be concentrating a lot on the high street, which we're seeing in the news. Every day, a, a new retailer going going under. What's your philosophy on that, and what's your thinking behind it? I think I need to roll back a little bit and explain the where we are in the market, because really, it's not a case of saying I'm a fan of commercials, so let's just do it. Absolutely, it's yeah. got to be what are the market conditions. And in my view, I don't see any appreciation in the next few years. I see uh, in London and the southeast. Uh, in many parts of the country, whether it's Brexit, no Brexit, deal, no deal, we whatever it is, there's going to be a small fall in, 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 in prices. And it will be five or six years before they rise again. So against that, that backdrop, you could argue, what's the point in doing property at all? Unless you've got a pretty clever strategy to mitigate that immediate drop. So I believe, yes, buy below market value. But what I'm looking at is sites which have immediately realisable development gain because that allows you to as near as damn it make your money when you buy by adding significant value in a small chunk of time now when i talk about immediately realizable i mean permitted development because you know people say to me you know um, have you thought about pub conversions well yeah i did it Uh, the odd pub conversion in the days before pd came along Mm -hmm. why would i buy a pub and spend two three years through planning when there's so many opportunities when you can get other commercial sites and realise what you want to realise from them through the permitted development process, which just requires you to file a, a prior approval notice and 56 days you've got mm-hmm. it. And that gives you certainty because as soon as you've filed that prior approval, as soon as you get it, you have upped the value of that property. So if you believe, I mean, uh, Mark Carney said, worst, worst Armageddon case, 35%. Well, I think he, said he, was, I think he said he was stress testing. Yes, he stressed tested. And even he, he said was... it would never be 35%. Um, 
even in the um, 1990s, it was about 18%. In 2009, it was about 8 or 9%. I'm thinking, you know, 6, 5, something like that, we'll, we'll see. But if you are buying something, yes, you're not so bothered about BMV, but perhaps you do. But the main uplift you're getting is from adding that development potential. Mm-hmm. So you're buying a commercial unit that has permitted development, and you get that easily and certainly to redevelop it. And you suddenly add 40%. So are that you, changes the game. So are you more excited about permitted development rights for commercial to resi prop- properties, or are you more excited about the opportunities to restructure the commercial element of, of existing commercial properties with maybe new leases or new covenants? Because uh, you seem to be doing a bit of that too. All of the above. I mean, really, the, uh, you've got to have your kit bag of uh, tools and techniques yeah. and let the spreadsheet and the numbers tell you what to do. So there's permitted development to convert part to residential. There's permitted development to convert all to residential. There's also permitted development to convert one type of commercial use to another type of commercial use. For example, many bank buildings are A2 use and they're relatively easy to convert into A3 to make a restaurant because you've seen them up and down high streets. Yeah. They've got a nice brick, sorry, stone-fronted facade and they're normally in central locations in the high street and they convert nicely to uh, restaurant uses. So it's not just converting to residential, but it's also to convert into other sort of commercial uses. So what would you say is the biggest opportunity at the moment in, in terms of commercial properties keeping them as commercial or changing them to different commercial uses. What kind of use class do you think that there is going to be demand for? Um, It's area to area. And it is occupier demand. You've got to always look at that. I mean, the building we're sitting in is a failed office-to-resi conversion project. It was bought with the intention of converting it to residential. After looking at the figures... We found that in St Albans, 360,000 square foot of office space has been lost to residential conversions in the last uh, two and a half years or so. Commercial rents have gone from £16 a square foot to £30 a square foot for long leases. And then a long lease in commercial terms is like a single family let. And then if you do serviced offices, that's like the HMO aspect of it. So if you expect a uh, three times uplift from doing HMO to single family let... It's a similar thing with um, serviced offices, and you bundle in the bills and shared facilities end up being meeting rooms and kitchenettes and that kind of thing. So the numbers said that it is better to stay commercial. The other thing that I had my eye on was the type of tenant as well. It's, It's certainly a lot easier to manage the shared facilities with the type of tenants we have. We don't, we don't get this sort of... Uh, he stole you, my sandwich from the fridge. He stole my sandwich <laughs> from the fridge. And, you know, I've had people ringing up saying, um, you know, the guy in room three insists on coming down and making his breakfast naked. Can you come and do something about it? Know. <laughs> Sorry about that, by the way. <laughs> I mean, everything that you can think of has happened in an HMO. Uh, you know, no one's had a naked board meeting yet in the uh, communal meeting room. Yeah. So we just don't have those... Um, sort of uh, problems and issues. But the other thing is, going back to what we've talked about outside of this podcast, how the tenancy rules over time, over the last 20 years, have changed, and the uh, residential tenancies I'm talking about, to favour the renter far more. And a huge amount of those changes have been in the last probably two, three years. Exactly, exactly. And when you rent out commercial property, there are business tenancies 
Uh, it's not for someone's home. If someone doesn't pay the rent in a serviced office suite, you lock the doors and that's it, you yeah. find someone else. It is a licence and the terms are as they would you would expect in a commercial contract. So a lot more control. Exactly. And so at the moment, obviously, we're in strange times politically, possibly economically. We've discussed how you've, you've adapted to different markets. What do you think is the biggest risk at the moment for UK property? There are some political risks, but I'm not sure whether I am worried about too much. I know that Brexit uh, is going to be an issue, and whether there's deal or no deal, um, there is going to be an aftermath of dealing with it. Mm -hmm. The longer uncertainty drags on, that's going to be the big problem, I think. Although, if you are well-resourced, as time goes on, buyers are holding back, and a lot of sellers are holding back as well. Yeah. But everyone needs to sell for a reason. And time moves on. And every month it's like popcorn popping. Mm. Um, there's different people reaching their motivation point where they have to sell at different times. So there are some pickings to be had. But I think Brexit uh, is going to result in a uh, fall, a modest fall, but not by much. But the reason I think it'll be a good thing is that Brexit is not just going to hit the property market, it's going to hit the economy. Mm -hmm. And the government of the day needs... I don't think Boris gives us stuff about us or, or, or what we do. What he gives us stuff about is getting re-elected. And he's only going to get re-elected if the economy is great. And the economy is going to only be great if he encourages folks like us and, other, and anyone entrepreneurial to get out there and be entrepreneurial. So as soon as this Brexit... Money needs to flow. Exactly. As soon as Brexit happens, what we'll see is uh, a budget and measures that encourages entrepreneurial activity. If he gets that, we get economic growth, he gets a shot at being Especially with the uh, tightening of fiscal policy over the last sort of 10 years. I think the country is crying out for a little bit of a release, certainly some more spending on certain certain parts of, of, of the country, definitely. I mean, there may be that, but I, I'm, I'm not convinced. I think what we're going to see is a, an encouragement to be entrepreneurial. I mean, there are certain... I hope so. Uh, we, can go, we can do a whole other thing on what's holding back in terms of the tax system and incentivization <laughs> system for, incentivization for entrepreneurs. But Boris has given every indication that he wants to free that up, uh, and he'll have to do that if the economy is going to survive and prosper after... So, you know, in those sort of circumstances, we can only... So, if it, really. so in terms of risks, really, it's... The, the big, you, you're not too concerned. I'm not too concerned, because the other thing that often throws things out is interest rates. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no... Uh, and this will be recorded, so <laughs> we'll come back to this. I really do not feel there's any upward possibility of interest rates going up, because we're more global than ever... And unless every other, it's very difficult for a major world economy to increase rates or decrease rates in isolation. It I think go up and down within a band. I, I, I agree to a point. The only thing I can see changing that is if there is a no deal and inflation starts to grow fairly rapidly uh, in terms of things that we're buying. And, and obviously we're a nation that buys a lot more than we uh, produce so we're going to have to buy more and if our costs increase that's going to increase inflation but I can't see that going over the top to cause any any form of uh, interest rates coming down especially when GDP isn't isn't actually too 
Um, listen, I, I, for what it's worth, I think we should have stayed in. It was worth all the hassle. But I, I can't see that happening, to tell you the truth, because mm. the stuff coming into the country, Britain's in control of whether they put on tariffs. And it's really the exports that's the issue. And more comes in from the EU than goes back the other way. So it should... As a percentage of their GDP, it's less. So... Um, again, I'm, no, I'm, that's not, true. I'm not disagreeing I mean, with you, but it's it's like what would hurt someone more, losing 10% of a million or losing 30% of 900 grand? No, that's gonna, uh, yeah. no. I, I listen, I get your point, yeah. and you know, as you say, I'm not even an economist, but you get 10 of them in a room, and they all have a different point yeah, of view. Yeah. But I, I, I really, from what I've read, I don't see upward inflationary pressure by too much as being a massive. No, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I think there they will obviously be a, a devaluation of the pound a little bit, which means holidays will become a bit more expensive. Uh, but interest rates will certainly stay low, I believe. We should all start investing in Cornwall then, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> staycations yeah. and all of that. But um, th- that's why I, I'm reasonably optimistic, because I feel that they're going to need every entrepreneur to step up to the plate mm. and uh, make the economy better so in terms of your business specifically what do you think are the major risks for your business and is there anything that you've done over the last couple of years to try and mitigate against those risks i think it's um it's really balance there is a risk if the if there's a shot to the economy obviously it affects our tenants Mm -hmm. So what we've always got to do and what I've always been keen on is having a broad spectrum of tenants. So uh, if we're into retail, then spread the areas, spread the tenancy types. So know, diversify, diversify through yeah. geography, tenant type yes. and use class. And, and use class, yeah. yes, yes. Because as long as, as, long as um, the rent role is preserved, then pretty much most other things I believe we can weather. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the key in any downturn is just weathering the storm, isn't it? Because the, the and the key to uh, you asked me what we've done to leverage, I think is a, is a sorry what we've done to mitigate. to mitigate is keep control of leverage. I've always not been a fan of the remortgaging to the hilt mm-hmm. way of doing things. Um, it's a drug, and you get addicted. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can wean yourself off, it's really hard in the beginning, but after a while, it does reap benefits. Now, you know, for people listening to this, I think a lot of this is a stage-of-life thing. When you're in your 20s and 30s, yeah, you let it rip a little bit, maximum loan-to-value, you've got maximum time to recover if you have a minor yeah. setback. Everyone and can you need go to build bankrupt your once in their 30s, right? Well, you shouldn't, <laughs> but I think at that time, if you, when you're building your base, it has many more decades to work. Uh, later on, it's, it, you've got the comfort of having built something, so you don't have to go gun to Well, it's, ra- it, it's, it's kind of the, the odd thing of it goes from creating wealth to making sure you don't lose it. Well, that's true. And it's when, when, when you kind of start to move from one phase to yeah. the other. Because when you've got nothing and you create something, yeah. you've got, you have nothing to lose anyway. Absolutely. But when you've got something and you're trying to create a bit more, then you, you've got potentially something to lose. So do you keep betting everything on the casino wheel each and every time? So what, what you often see is where people have uh, come unstuck and, and, and gone under is they've been doubling down on something that's worked well and yeah. then they've doubled down, doubled down and at some point it's going to come crashing, crashing down. I mean, I read something which Warren Buffett said which I kind of um, have, I think I 
pretty much uh, lived by, is that a sustainable level of growth is around about 15% of your asset worth, if you like. If you do less than that, then it doesn't really make much of a difference that you're going to notice. If you start to do more than that, then you're taking risk. a bit more of a risk. Yeah. Now, obviously, when you're beginning in your 20s, doing 15% growth, you'll never get anywhere. You've got to go 100, 200, yeah. 300%. But once you've been in it a decade, you should start thinking about what level of risk is worth uh, taking on. Uh, the most successful property companies, the, uh, I find, are, to a large extent, internally funded. So if you're funding a lot of uh, projects through the rent internal roll, reserves, yeah. Yeah, internal um, uh, rent roll, uh, then that puts you in a far stronger position um, and a good position to pick up assets, particularly at times yeah. like these. Oh, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much, Ranjan. Have you got anything else you'd like to discuss or say to the listeners? No, I, I think I would add that we recorded this in September 2019. And I think the next three to four years from now until about 2022, I'd say, going by previous cycles, are going to be golden years. This is another repeat of 2009 to 2013, uh, 1990 to 1994, and then um, in the early 2000s we had a similar period, uh, 2000 to 2003, um, where timing is everything in property, and there's especially if you're leveraged. If, if yes, <laughs> but if you, it's like you're, it's like you're, if you imagine the sort of, you can only see this if you're doing the, you watching this on YouTube. <laughs> but if you imagine the sort of down and it the goes trough sort of and up, the, peak. the trough, yeah. yeah. You're, two thousand and from now for the next three or four years is going to be that trough. Yeah. So it doesn't. It doesn't. Don't bother timing the bottom of the trough no. as long as you're on that on it. that down in there. Yeah. The difference between somewhere in the bottom of that trough to the top of the next peak is the largest differential you can get in the market cycle. You only get in anyone's lifetime, in anyone's useful lifetime, you get three or four cracks at that before you'll be in the old folks' home. So this is one of those times. And you can play this in 10 years' time, and, you'll re- and if you haven't acted over the next three or four years to pick up... The last time this happened, 2009, 2000, th- between 2009 and 2013, cracking years, uh, because stuff was cheap, and it didn't take long for, it to boom. for, for, the, uh, for the prices to double, treble, yeah. or even quadruple. And we're in the same period, the same characteristics exist for the next few years, and 10 years' time, you'll regret it if you didn't get involved Fantastic wise words there. So I'll definitely be um, coming back and checking in the what three four years and making making sure you're right. And and if you're listening to this on the podcast and you want to access our YouTube channel, we're the fastest growing property YouTube channel in the UK. We've added six thousand subscribers in the last six months. We, uh, we release new content each and every week, and it's all dedicated to helping you more be more successful in property. Just search my name. Ranjan Bhattacharya or Baker Street Property Meet uh, into YouTube and subscribe and uh, have fun with the content. Ranjan, thanks so much. It's always great to talk to you. You've got a wealth of knowledge and I'm sure all the listeners and watchers will really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast. <laughs>